There's something slightly um, instinctive, isn't there, about coming together and singing. There's something instinctive about human nature in that. It's a great way that we express our affections, our emotions, whether they're affections of joy or they're affections of sadness. It is uncanny how at those times we often turn to song. You know, whether it's on the football pitch, you know, and you're watching your team, they, you sing for joy as they score the goal, or you kind of ridicule the ref when they make a bad decision. It's usually in song, kind of the extremes of emotions there. When we're sad, when we're lonely, when we're feeling slightly down and depressed, we may not audibly sing. That is, we may allow another, we might put our you know, headphones on uh, or listen to something. We allow someone else to voice our emotions as we listen in. But for many, we like to sing, or at least we like listening to sing. And that seems quite instinctive, doesn't it? I guess we all recognise that. Likewise, when we come to church, when we gather, around a quarter of our time in this church is spent singing, quarter to about a third of our time. In many other churches, it's a lot more, isn't it? But why should Christians sing? That's our first question. It seems instinctive, that's how I've begun, but why? Because you kind of want to do, you don't just want to go with your gut feeling on this one, do you? We need some biblical foundation for why we feel the way that we do. And what if we don't feel that way? What if you come along and go, oh, singing part, no, I just can, I'll kind of just like mouth along and sort of go along with it. But is that legitimate? Ought we want to sing? I guess for answers to these preliminary questions, I think we probably need to go right back to the beginning. That is, I mean, the beginning of creation, if you like, right to the, uh, the beginning of the Bible. But let me do it in a different way. I'm going to turn to how C.S. Lewis depicted that in one of the Narnia Chronicles. Uh, the first book, The Magician's Nephew, uh, which was about the fourth or fifth written, but it's the first in the series. It takes right back to the beginning times. And uh, chapter eight, particularly, is called Aslan's Creation. Look how, listen how C.S. Lewis depicts the beginning. This is brilliant, by the way, and I hope you all go back and buy it and read it. Hush, said the cabin. They all listened. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. It was hardly even a tune, but it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful, he could hardly bear it. I could go on, the chapter is just brilliant, chapter 8, about the magician's nephew. But it is odd, let me just make one disclaimer, it's odd that in Nazan's creation there's no words, because words are so central to the Genesis account. So that's a slight strange thing, but I think Lewis very, very rightly captures that at the heart of creation, there is a God who sings and a universe also that sings. He creates a singing universe. Now, the Genesis account, you might just go to it and you see that in the Hebrew, it's written in a poetic form that many would attribute and say, well, that's been sung over time. It's in that kind of form that you would sing to. Uh, but if that isn't clear enough, 
Let me turn, if you can, to Job 38. You don't have to do it yourself, but Job chapter 38, verse 7 says this. And Job there is speaking, sorry, God is speaking to Job in this terrible storm. Um, And he says this. While the morning stars sang together, the creation stars sang together, all the angels shouted for joy. What he's saying here is that when the universe was created, the stars sang. Now, we don't know what they sang. It could perhaps could be, as Lewis put it, the low notes, um, you know, as he described it. But however the form of singing, it was clear to Lewis it would have been beautiful. It's clear to God in the Genesis 1 account it was very good. So the universe is, is created to sing. Maybe not songs as we know with the melodies that, and tunes that we know, but to sing in joy, in harmony with the Creator. But as we know, it didn't remain in such a way, did it? In such harmonious union, the creation and Creator. No, what we see, we've seen it in our Bible overview, in Genesis chapter 3, sin comes into the world, and where before the creation sang, we now know from Romans 8, which I looked at last year, what happens? Creation groans. Romans 8, 8 verse 22. See, the glorious and harmonious song of creation becomes a groaning, painful labour. Of course, we still do get echoes of nature singing, don't we? You can see it, the glistening light coming through the uh, the window there. We can hear it in, in the gentle breeze, the water in the brook, the birds in the trees, as we sung in the first hymn. These are remnants of what God intended and created nature to be in response to him. Psalm 96 puts it well. Why don't we just turn there very quickly? Psalm uh, chapter 96. It's interesting this. So Psalm chapter 96, verse 11. Uh, Just a few verses, if I can read those. Psalm 96, verse 11 says, Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in truth. It's interesting that, isn't it? Where before the universe sang, looking back in praise of the creator God, now creation sings looking forward to the judgment of God and the new creation he will usher in. But what about us? You know, this is all right for all the creation around us, but what about us as human beings? The pinnacle of his creation. Now, we're the ones in Adam responsible for bringing rebellion and this kind of, this groaning, you know, nature, bringing sin into the world. And the strangled voice of the universe is a kind of, it's a, it's a damning kind of judgment upon us, a testimony of our fall. And how does God respond to that treachery? Let me turn, if I can, to Zephaniah. Turn with me, if you can, to Zephaniah chapter 3. First one there, shout out the number of the page. This is going to be slow, isn't it? Zephaniah. 946. 9.46. That's why John's an elder. He got there first. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 16 to 18. Zephaniah is a prophet, 
And he's really pointing forward to the new gospel age. It's showing how things are going to be when Christ has done his work. And what is God doing? We have been responsible. We brought sin into the world. All the mess of the world we see around us is our responsibility. How is God reacting? Is he kind of like bearing a grudge, moping around? No. We see verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. See, God loves his faithful children so much that he rejoices over us with singing. Even though we rebel, even though we turn our backs on him, we ignore him so often, he sings over us, rejoicing in those that he has saved. So made in God's image, in Genesis 1, that's what we're told, we are created in the image of a singing God, and therefore we're made to sing. And so as the first fruits of the new creation we're described in, in Romans 8, we're the ones who God will use to begin to make all things new, pointing towards the new creation. So as we preach and as we proclaim Jesus Christ and as we sing of Jesus Christ, we follow on in the image of God. We, we hear the strangled song of creation, the groaning, but we move to sing this new song, the salvation song. And the verses before I quoted, in, I hope you're still in Zephaniah. Look at verse 14 and 15. The words used there are to sing and to shout aloud, to be glad and to rejoice with all your heart. Why? Well, verse 15. Because the Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned, <clears throat> he's turned your back on your enemy. Back on your enemy, which is death he's speaking of there. He's speaking of a victory that's been won. A salvation that's been brought. We ought to be singing, not groaning a song, but rather singing a new song. Songs about God, about how he's making things new. Songs that give us, you know, let us well up with praise. Because God has defeated our greatest enemy, death. He's rescued us. God's people have always been singing. The songs of the Bible, as you go through the whole Old Testament, there are many songs as you kind of plot through. And all of them really are are kind of models or or types of uh, songs that we ought to sing. They're praises to God of his love and his rescue. They're pouring out of our hearts in times of trouble. The Psalms that we're going to be looking at over the next number of weeks, Psalm 5, Psalm 107 to 150, They're songs that God has given us to to voice our hearts in praise and in sorrow. And they're to be sung in the congregation, both for God's people as they're gathered to strengthen his church, 1 Corinthians 14 says, but also to build us up, to teach us, as Colossians 3 says. But the point of what we're going to look at now is what's the content of our songs to be? We're to sing, as we've looked at in all the verses that mentioned so far, read so far. We're to sing a new song, the Bible tells us. It's a theme that begins in Psalms and ends in Revelation. So why should Christians sing? Because we're made in the image of a singing God and we're given a song of salvation. What should Christians sing? Secondly, we're to sing a new song. We're to sing a new song. Now this phrase, a new song, comes throughout the Bible nine times. You've heard seven of the accounts when it's written. And I'll take you to the last two in just a few moments. Now, 
really what it is, is a definition of what we should be singing in this gospel age, uh, after Christ, what, how we've known our salvation. It's like a shorthand summary, if you like, of what the content of our song should be. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to very quickly run through each of the nine occurrences of a new song. You've heard them read, so I won't read out all of them again. But I'll just point you to them. So very quickly, you've got all of them in your Bibles there. Find Psalms, and we'll go back to Psalm uh, 33 just to begin with. And I'm going to flick you through them very, very fast. So that's why they're printed out for you. There they are. And um, quickly, let's go through them. And I'm going to show you the theme of the new song as it goes through. Because that should help us to understand what we should sing. And we're going to couple them together to begin with. Psalm 33 and Psalm 40. See, the theme of the new song in the Bible begins as a song that is sung primarily as a result of our salvation. That we've been saved by God. It's a hymn of praise sung in response to rescue. So the new song isn't a particular song. We haven't got, you know, the new song beside some of the other songs that we sing. The new song is a category, an understanding. And it's, it's describing what our song should be full to the brim with. That is, firstly, in Psalm 33 and, verse, uh, and 40, praise to God for rescuing us and saving us. You see the word rescue and save is really big in those first two uh, um, sections. Let's go on, Psalm 96. And Psalm 98, those verse 1 to 3, both again. Now, both these songs, both these psalms, they've got this very similar vein of praise, like the first two, but a new direction is included in them. Did you spot it? Have a look at them, the first one, if you can, Psalm 96. The new direction, you see, these songs, the new song is not just to be sung here in the gathering, but rather. It's, in Psalm 96, it says to be declared among the nations, doesn't it? In Psalm 98, verse 3, it says it's to be revealed to the ends of the earth. Do you get the point? There is a, there's a going out nature to the new song. It's not to be kept just amongst us. It's a salvation song that's to be declared among the nations. Let's go on, Psalm 144, if we can. Flick uh, forward now. Psalm 144. Verse 9 to 10. Now the point here, I think, is to reveal the status of the one who sings the new song. The point is that they've not been placed, the believer, the one who's trusted the Lord, has not been placed in a kind of a neutral situation, a position of safety. Rather, it's so much more than that. This this song here is is a new song, it's a victory song. Not a safety song. So not, we're not just to sing about our salvation, though we are too. You know, let me give you a, something I wrote earlier. It's really poetic. It's brilliant. I'll put a tune to it later. You know, Jesus, thank you for making me safe in heaven. I'm all right now. Thank you very much. That's a great first line. I'm working on the rest. You know, the, it's not the most poetic song, and it's also not enough. We're to sing, and we're to go out singing as those victorious, essentially, in a war. Of course, our war is not with weapons. It is not a physical battle with bombs strapped to our chests. Our war is a spiritual battle. We wage war in a loving, 
gracious way. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. To win people for a victory with Jesus Christ. And we go out with the authority of the Spirit of God. And with his word working with that. But our song should reflect that victory that's been won. In and through Jesus Christ. I remember some of the great old songs when I, as I grew up. We don't have so many victory kind of songs which uh, reflect this element of the new song anymore. But uh, many of you might remember. Do you remember Soldiers of Christ Arise and Put Your Armour On? No, just me. Or maybe Nathan as well at the back. But we remember those old hymns. They were songs of victory. But you'll know this. O Church Arise. Many of you will know that um, hymn. It's a Keith and Getty uh, hymn. O Church Arise. Second verse says this. Our call to war is to love the captive soul and to rage against the captor and with the sword, the word of God, Ephesians 6, that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valour. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. There's a victory. The songs we should sing, the content, the new song is a victory song. Let's go on, Psalm 149. We're in book five here, so I'm giving you an, a, a taste, a psalm of book five in, in, in Psalms here, the, le, the last uh, portion of that. Psalm 149, verse one to five. Look at verse one. You'll see here, I think, that what we learn about the new song, the songs that we should sing as Christians, is it's not a solitary song here, you see. In verse one, it's to be sung corporately, primarily... The new song, the, the songs we should sing are corporate songs. And practically, let me just give you a kind of practical outworking musically if you like. That is why church songs musically are quite simple. Or they ought to be quite simple. So Nathan can sing them. I'm oh, sorry, I'm picking on Nathan today, he's a good friend. But, it, it, um, but it, it's so, anyone, all of us can sing. That's why... And they're written in that way. They've been criticised throughout history for that. But many hymn writers who are brilliant musicians could write the most complex kind of, you know, cantatas and so on. They wrote hymns simply. And so that everyone could sing them in a range of notes which we weren't all squeaking or, you know, couldn't couldn't reach. So the new song is primarily a corporate song. But it isn't wrong to sing for joy on your own. Look at verse 5, just interestingly. It's okay to sing on your beds. Okay, so primarily it's corporate, but it's okay to sing on your beds. So you're all right. You can sing for joy on your own, wherever that may be, in your cars, with your iPods on, whatever it may be. So let me just summarize. The new song is the salvation song we saw firstly. It's to be declared among the nations. It's going to go out. That is, It's a victory song. Primarily it's a corporate song. It's a corporate song. Let's go to Isaiah 42. Let's flip over the pages. Isaiah chapter 42. Let's move on. Isaiah 42 verse 10. Now this is another passage of victory, but this verse, if you like, is linking the victory of Christ, who here is depicted as the servant. So it's foreseeing Christ. He's a servant in Isaiah 42. And it's linking the victory of Christ and us. Being part of that victory. Going out in song here. 
And the writer here is saying that the new song ought to be a universal song. That is, again, to go out and proclaim that victory. So songs of the church, historically, the new songs of the church, throughout the ages have been songs that are not sung here, but to go out to proclaim that victory, to uh, you know, place that into the hearts and the minds of the people. And they do that, don't they? Let me illustrate if I can. I was amazed when I... As a boy, I had the privilege of going to the FA Cup final, which is the kind of the pinnacle of all football, apart from the World Cup final in this country. I went a number of times as a boy. And it's interesting, even to today, to today tears are always shed when the tradition happens that we sing, 90,000 people at Wembley still sing today, two verses of Abide With Me. It's extraordinary. And they all stand there, these football supporters, they've ever been to church, and they don't know why we're singing this, the brass band break out, and there's words in the programme, and everyone starts singing Abide With Me. It's an extraordinary thing. It's a bizarre tradition, but it sobers so many. Likewise, it was interesting, wasn't it, at the beginning of the Olympics, in the opening ceremony in 2012, Emily Sande sang all six verses of Abide With Me. It's extraordinary. Because she sang to over one billion people, I believe, on that occasion, that Christ would come in his judgment and that he was the only means of salvation. Isn't that extraordinary? And no one batted an eyelid. No one commented and said how big it, you know, how big it is she was or anything. They just said, that was moving. That was interesting. They said comments like that. They didn't know why. She sang essentially a new song because it universally went out declaring that the servant Christ was the saviour of the world. So let me summarise. The new song is a salvation song. Uh, It's to be declared among the nations. It's a victory song, primarily a corporate song, but it declares that Christ, the servant, is the saviour of the world. Now we're going to come now to two passages to finish with. Revelation 5, let's turn, if we can, Revelation 5, verse 6, rather than, not verse 9. Revelation 5, verse 6. It just doesn't get any better. I'm, I'm so excited about it. next year. We're doing Revelation in small groups. And uh, if you don't get excited about this, I'm going I'm to start, you know, kind of poking you and seeing if you're actually alive. But, you know, here we go. Look at Revelation 5, verse 6. Let me read it to you. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of uh, him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. The content of that song, let's have a look. You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. But it's all about this new song. The song is sung in heaven when the great plan of God is revealed. That's what the opening of the scrolls is all about. This is the new song in perfection and in eternity. And it all centers around, if if you have a look there at that beginning part of the new song, uh, verse 9, halfway through, you'll see it all centers around the completed work of Jesus Christ. The lamb that was slain as he strung out his arms on a cross to die for our rebellion, our sin against God. All those times we've ignored God. The whole new song centers around that lamb that was slain for you, who died in your place to take a justice that you deserve so that you could be right with God. This is the foundation on which all Christian songs, all Christian hymns should be based. The content of the new song is there in verse 9 and onwards. And if any of our songs in any line and in any phrase stray away from this content, then we should not sing them. Jesus is utterly central. He's the king here, enthroned. He's worthy as the lamb who was slain for the salvation of many. Let's go on. Revelation 14. Revelation 14, verse 1 to 5. The pictorial language, we're going to spend lots more time looking at this language uh, next year, but you get the idea of the 144,000. That, that simply is uh, 12 times 1,244. That's 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the representatives of God's people times a multitude. A multiple, multitude was considered 1,000 at the time, so 144 times that. It's not a, an exact figure, as some might say. It is metaphorical in that sense. But here we go. Let me read it. Verse 1 to 5. Then I looked, and there before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. That looks cool, doesn't it? (laughs) I love that. And I heard a sound from heaven like a roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harpists. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are they, those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God. And the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They're blameless. See, the new song is the song of the completed church. It's God's people. 
Only the church will sing the song, having been made pure and blameless. We aren't by ourselves or our own virtue pure and blameless. We know that. We know our lives. We know our hearts. We know our minds. We're made blameless and pure by the work of Christ on the cross. The point is, I think here, is that you better get used to it, this new song of salvation. Because it will be the song that you will sing if you're in Christ and know Christ. It's the song you'll be singing for the rest of eternity. So you may as well get used to singing it now and enjoy singing it now. See, the difference between those last verses in Revelation 5 and and Revelation 14 is Revelation 5 is a snapshot, it's a little window for us to look into glory now and to see Christ enthroned, opening the scrolls, the purpose of God being revealed. But actually, Revelation 14 is is a picture of looking forward of what it will be to come. Therefore, what we sing now ought to be a rehearsal of what we will sing together, perfected in glory. Let me conclude. I'm going to try and bring things together if I can. Uh, just in these last uh, two or three minutes that we have. Why can all our sung worship, our songs of praise, be summed up in this little phrase, a new song? It's there in the Psalms, it's there in Psalm Book 5, and we're going to look at that more and more as the weeks go ahead. But, but why? Why is that new song so important to our understanding? What should Christians sing? Remember, let me take you back. God, when he's created, he said it was new, it's very good. It sang, creation sang, he sang. It's been strangled by sin, now it groans. But we and the universe are now being renewed today and will be forevermore by Christ as he has established himself through his blood in in the new covenant. Something new is happening. And Paul says, I mean, let me go through all the new language, if you can. In Galatians 6, he says, we're a new creation if we're in Christ. As creatures, uh, as new creatures, we have new life in Acts 5. And we have a new heart and a new spirit. Do you remember the Bible overview? Ezekiel 36. We have direct access to God by a new and living way. Where? Hebrews 10. We looked at it in the Bible overview again. Uh, we're, we're not to be like everyone else. We're be to be transformed by what? The renewing of our minds. Romans 12 verse 2. In Ephesians 4, we're to put on the new self, transformed to be like Christ. We obey a new commandment, Jesus teaches us, to love one another. And so we serve in a new way of the Spirit, not bound by the Old Testament law. You can't properly sing the new song if we do not understand that we are truly new in Christ. We're like new wine, if you described elsewhere. We need it to be accommodated by new wineskins. We've been transformed into the new church, which is picked up later as the new Jerusalem. But we wait in this time, as Jesus says, pointing forward in Matthew 19, he says, for the renewal of all things. And that renewal time is then called the new heavens and the new earth in 2 Peter chapter 3. And all of those things, those That newness which Christ has brought, that is the content of the new song. That is what we sing of. The new song encapsulates anything that is included in all of those categories. The heart of what we sing must be, though, the point of which the newness begins. That is, as Christ strung out his arms on the cross for you and ushers in the opportunity for newness of life with him. All newness stems entirely from that single, powerful act of grace.
So as we look over the next few weeks at the songs in Psalm Book 5, beginning Psalm 107, which James wonderfully prayed a little bit about it in, in our prayers earlier on. Psalm 107 next week. As we look at those, we will examine them in the light of the new song that is in our hearts because of what Christ has done. Oh, that the, the Psalms will voice at times the pain of our hearts, the frustrations of our hearts, the joys of our hearts as well. But ultimately, they, they, will, they must and they will point us to the eternal song that we will sing around the throne <coughs> to the Lamb, the new song, the Lamb that was slain on a cross to make all things new. So my encouragement is this. Let us sing a new song. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that we are not um, here to remember and just look back. But rather, because of what Christ has achieved, we look forward. Because there is so, so much more that is promised and uh, we don't just vainly follow, but we have utter, total assurance and hope because we have seen the Lord Jesus Christ risen and exalted and now reigning in glory. And so therefore, in the newness that he brings in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in creation, all of that is just glimmers, it's first fruits of a harvest that is to come of everything that is new. Where we will be gathered around the throne singing this new song, declaring the praises of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain. So Heavenly Father, may we, in every way that we possibly can, sing, proclaim, rejoice in the new song that the Lord Jesus Christ brings. Amen. Seems to me, in light of what Andy's just shared with us, that we've seen.